Okay, so I am recording this episode on October 23rd in the year of our Lord, 2021. It was, uh, if I recall correctly, on October 24th that I did my first episode of this podcast. So I have become a little thoughtful. I'm thinking back over the things that I've learned and the things that I have yet to find out, the things that I think should be investigated more carefully. And these days it seems increasingly likely that I should engage on the subject of Calvinism more, or more broadly, High Augustinianism, um, predestinarian Augustinianism, you might say, since there are Catholic strands of this Augustinian theology, um, for example, uh, Banyasian Thomism. Uh, I talk a lot about um, predicates and their complements, X and not X, and how you need not X in order for X to have meaning. It's a little bit like the Tao the unity of opposites and all that. It's an essential part of predicate logic, which is something that I really learned from Chris Langan, whom uh, regular listeners know I am fond of s- citing. So it seems to me that Calvinism is is a salient topic um, as I move into the second season of uh, the podcast, because Calvinism is something like the complement or the backdrop, uh, the negation of um, the universalist Christianity, which I have been so keen to explore and and propound um, in this uh, podcast. Why do I say that Calvinism is something like the complement against which universalism is defined, or its opposite, and or negation? It's because of the trichotomous framework laid out by Thomas Talbot in The Inescapable Love of God. Three propositions which seem to exclude each other and which all faithful Christians would seem to have to make their choice among. First, God is willing but not able to save all. That you can call Arminianism. God is able but not willing to save all. That you can call Calvinism or predestinarian Augustinianism, and third, God is willing and able to save all. My friend Luke likes to say that the idea that God is is willing but not able to save all, the, the Arminian option, is something like a, a, a false option. It's, it's an illusion that doesn't really exist. And I basically agree with that based on the limits of human agency and free will. So that's why I think that it ends up being a duel, more or less, between universalism and Augustinianism. But lest it sound like I'm dismissing Arminianism without a fair hearing, let me just briefly review why I think that the Calvinists have the right of it uh, when they say that if any are sent to hell, to hell, um, that's essentially the will of God, ultimately speaking. The reason has to do with um, the chimerical and unreal nature of a fully autonomous human will that exists apart from God.
I like to explain it in terms of um, an agent's inability to be a cause of suai or the cause of himself. We exist contingently, which means that we come into being. As soon as we come into being, or as soon as we become moral agents capable of making fully informed choices for which we bear you know, full responsibility, we can make moral choices. But the values and the information that we make our choices in accordance with, that really dictate our choices, in fact, always precede the moment of choosing. And therefore, if you take the moment at which some moral agent um, was first capable of making a moral choice, the values and the information that he made that first choice in accordance with, and which, you know, destined uh, the rest of his life, those values and that information were by definition not, not chosen by the agent. He wasn't, he wasn't responsible for the fact that those values and that information were all he had to go on uh, in, uh, or prior to his first moral choice. And you might say, well, God doesn't hold him responsible for that. Um, and indeed, the values and the information that he had at the moment of his first moral choice are not determinative of his uh, destiny as a moral agent. I'm just going to deny that point blank and, and say that on the contrary, the, the values and the information that he had at the moment of his, uh, at, at, uh, of his first moral choice are determinative um, of his uh, destiny. Because if you take any moral choice, any, any moment of decision-making, and you rewind back to it, um, and you don't change the values or the information, you're never going to get a different outcome unless something like uh, indeterminacy or randomness is what's actually influencing the moral agent to make the decisions that he makes, which is also not compatible with free will or agency, which is rightly understood as self-determinism. The takeaway here is that self-determinism is still a determinism. But if one exists contingently, then one is not ultimately self-determining. And it follows that one is therefore not ultimately responsible for one's trajectory as a moral agent. That's, just, that's the simplest way that I can explain it. But there's an interesting sort of philosophical and theological question which Calvinism raises. If on the one hand, Arminianism errs by suggesting that the the human will can be more independent of God's will than it really can be. It seems like Calvinism makes uh, human will too too strongly cemented to God's will, utterly erases the distinction between the individual and God. Indeed, from this vantage point, it's easy to understand why Calvinism has often been attacked as panentheism, because where God is absolutely sovereign, which is a key teaching of Calvinism, then everything that happens, you know, whether natural or uh, man-made, human-caused, everything that happens is a reflection of God's will. The entire creation is a reflection of God's nature. It is an extension of God himself in some sense. This is most problematic um, as regards uh, the problem of evil because it seems to make God the author of evil, which is... Um, an issue that I'll touch on a bit later in the episode, but for now I just want to remain focused on the the seeming uh, pantheism or panentheism of, of Calvinism. 
in which the distinction between man's will and God's will is erased. It actually reminds me a lot of the pantheism or panentheism of, of Christopher Langan, who describes God as ultimate reality, um, who equates God with the universe, uh, not where universe is understood as the totality of um, everything physical, but where universe is understood as everything that's real. In other words, Langan conceives God as the uh, self-including set of all sets. He has a myriological definition of God. And for Langan, uh, God is both the ground of being understood as um, informational nil constraint or unbound telesis, as he calls it, sort of like the raw uh, pre-informational stuff of consciousness. Uh, and God is also the sort of panpsychic supermind that emerges from the the workings and the interrelationships of, of all real phenomena and all real minds. In this theological picture, everything that happens is in some sense the will of God, where God is equated with ultimate reality. But this in turn raises all kinds of questions um, about the details of such a uh, theological picture. In what intelligible sense that can we claim that everything either is God or everything is the will of God? Again, bear in mind predicates and their complements. The will of God is presumably opposed in meaning to some other real will. And you know, that's why I've been at pains to disambiguate the different senses in which we may mean God. When we're answering different theological questions, we may rely upon different identities or definitions or descriptions of God. In one sense, God is the ground of being. In another sense, though, when we're talking about uh, the difference between human will and God's will, at, you know, at least on, on, on my view of things, um, God means something different than just the ground of being. God also means something different than um, the, the panpsychic totality of um, every real system um, in their uh, interrelationships with each other. Rather, I would submit that within every consciousness, including the consciousness of ultimate reality, um, there is, uh, as a result of consciousness's you know, own uh, nature, um, a division between self and other. And that when it comes to uh, the question of man's will versus God's will, uh, God's will is the will of um, the self, which is manifest at the level of the consciousness of all that is. Um, at, at, at that level of panpsychic scale, again, there is a distinction between self and other. Um, God is, is, is that self, and then the contents of his consciousness, who are subjects of consciousness in their own right, um, are the others with whom he interacts. But he feels everything that, that they feel, and so in some sense they're, they're analogous to, to parts of his body, and to really get a grip on this um, picture, I would um, uh, suggest the the analogy to one's own consciousness in which, you know, when you interact with other individuals, those are actually in some sense, in a solipsistic sense, from just from the standpoint of your own consciousness, those are your own neurons that you're interacting with. And same thing with your hand and your feet. They're not your actual hand and feet in some sense. They're, they're also your own neurons that you're interacting with. 
So on my view, there is a sort of highest will or executive intelligence of ultimate reality that has a purpose over the longest of time frames that um, members of his, that the contents of his consciousness, which um, can be self-determining moral agents in their own right, uh, can be in greater or lesser degrees of teleological uh, synchronization with, but that ultimately everything flows according to God's purposes. For me, in other words, there is a great truth in, in the, the Calvinist idea of God as sovereign, absolutely sovereign, even, in a sense. You know, these, these statements, they all have meaning. The question is just how to interpret them. For me, there is a truth in the idea that God is sovereign over all. But you need a theological model in which to interpret that statement validly. For me, the CTMU offers something like that. But Calvinism... Uh, as conventionally defined, you know, which which usually allies itself with some uh, classical, some version of classical theism, especially with some version of absolute divine simplicity. I don't really see how it has the conceptual or philosophical resources to make sense of the claim that everything is actually God's will. When I think about it, I guess the metaphysical picture that's being offered by conventional Calvinism is something like deism, where um, you have a world of matter, um, and then sort of somehow, in, in some non-spatial sense, God is outside the material space-time continuum as some kind of absolutely simple spirit, although the sense of the word outside there is actually not defined, although one kind of thinks that it is. You know, one, one assumes one knows what outside means, but in this case it doesn't actually mean what you think you think it means and it's like so far so good but what we really have in in calvinism is a picture where it's almost like god is picking up he's setting up some toy soldiers and then knocking them down and you know having them play he's he's engaging in mock battles you know among his soldiers his toy soldiers because these soldiers they truly have no will independent of god's will where God is the motive force behind everything, then I don't see how one can meaningfully speak of a distinction between God's direct will or his indirect will, his positive or his, his permissive will. It seems like the, the desideratum in theology is uh, multiplicity in unity, or panentheism is, is one way you could describe it. Um, because what you don't want is some kind of... Um, absolute dualism in which there's a kind of unbridgeable gulf be between God and man that would be the true that would be the true deism but you also don't want some kind of uh, pantheistic monism which utterly collapses the distinction between um, the human and the divine uh, even if it only threatens to do this by collapsing collapsing the distinction between the human will and the divine will and leaving the two categories otherwise ontologically separate. Granted, these are the you know the relationship between one's own will and God's will. I think if 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 you're a sensitive enough theologian, you're going to recognize that this is this is a, a hard category to make sense of, or a hard a hard topic to make sense of. Just like C.S. Lewis was fond of uh, quoting the Bible verse that goes. Um, Work out your salvation with fear and trembling, for it is the Lord God 
who worketh in you. Philippians 2, verses 12 through 13. Wherefore, my beloved, as ye have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God which worketh in you, both to will and to do of his good pleasure. Very often in the life of Christian prayer, it seems like one not only asks God to bring about or forestall certain outcomes, but one also asks God of one's own nature to change one's nature. It's a voluntary uh, relinquishing of one's uh, free will by one's own free will. So, you know, there is truth in Calvinism as, as far as I'm concerned, just as there's truth in the claim that the human will is separate from the divine will. There's a both and here that we have to um, hold on to and uh, uh, val validly interpret, you know, in some theological model, whether that theological model is, is actually available to us given our human uh, limitations uh, in, in our lifetime um, is perhaps another question. And um, I think in, in, in Calvin's writings, not that I've read them in any great depth, I have to admit that right up front, um, there is great truth, but there's also a way in which um, he, he tries to um, uh, affirm both, uh, you know, the, the unity uh, and, and the difference, you know, in the relationship between uh, man's will and God's will. And he, he ultimately fails to properly articulate it. And um, you see that most clearly um, in uh, his uh, writings um, on uh, the question of whether God is the author of evil. And because I'm lazy and I haven't read Calvin in any great depth, uh, to make my point, I'm going to uh, advert your attention to um, this website, authorofsin.pressbooks.com slash chapter slash in the words of John Calvin. So this is, this is um, Pressbooks. This is a web page um, on that site called In the Words of John Calvin. I just found someone who pulled up a bunch of Calvin quotes. And, um, you know, there, there is the possibility that he fabricated all of them and he's just a big liar. Um, so, if you're really concerned about that, you can go and look the, the quotations up because I'll, uh, I'll be providing the, uh, the page numbers. But for my part, you know, I don't, I don't jump to that conclusion. I assume that, you know, these, these quotations are accurate. Now, it could be that they're so pulled out of context that they are not reflective of Calvin's thought for that reason. However, when you, when you listen to them all with me, you're going to realize that there's so many quotations like this that it's it's like statistically impossible that they're all pulled out of context in such a way that they somehow uh, give the opposite meaning to what Calvin intended. So just to give you an idea of the knots in which Calvin tangles himself when he um, gets into the territory of who causes sin and in what sense does God, is God the author of evil and if so in what sense? I'm going to read um, the, the selected quotations 
uh, and excerpts um, from this uh, webpage uh, written by Timothy Zebel. First heading, God has predetermined everything. We also note that we should consider the creation of the world so that we may realize that everything is subject to God and ruled by his will, and that when the world has done what it may, nothing happens other than what God decrees. Acts, page 66. First, the eternal predestination of God, by which before the fall of Adam, he decreed what should take place concerning the whole human race and every individual, was fixed and determined. Concerning the eternal predestination of God, page 121. God, has, oh, God had no doubt decreed before the foundation of the world what he would do with every one of us, and had assigned to everyone by his secret counsel his part in life. Calvin's New Testament Commentaries, page 20. Inasmuch as God elects some and passes by others, the cause is not to be found in anything else but in his own purpose. Before men are born, their lot is assigned to each of them by the secret will of God. The salvation or the perdition of men depends on his free election. Calvin's Bible Commentaries, pages 262 to 263. Second heading, God's predestination is according to his secret will. Let him, therefore, who would beware of such unbelief, always bear in mind that there is no random power or agency or motion in the creatures who are so governed by the secret counsel of God that nothing happens but what he has knowingly and willingly decreed. Institutes of the Christian Religion, Book 1, Chapter 16, Section 3 When Augustine used the term permission, the meaning which he attaches to it will best appear from a single passage, where he proves that the will of God is the supreme and primary cause of all things, because nothing happens without his order or permission. Ibidem, Book 1, Chapter 16, Section 8 but when they call to mind that the devil and the whole train of the ungodly are in all directions held in by the hand of God as with a bridle, so that they can neither conceive any mischief nor plan what they have conceived, nor how much soever they may have planned, move a single finger to perpetrate, uh, unless insofar as God permits, nay, unless insofar as he commands, that they are not only bound by his fetters, but are even forced to do him service. When the godly think of all these things, they have ample sources of consolation. Ibidem, Book 1, Chapter 17, Section 2 Third heading, denies that God is the author of evil. First, it must be observed that the will of God is the cause of all things that happen in the world, and yet God is not the author of evil. Calvin, Concerning the Eternal Predestination of God Page 169. Next heading affirms that God is the author of evil. It is easy to conclude how foolish and frail is the support of divine justice by the suggestion that evils come not to be. Excuse me. It is easy to conclude how foolish and frail is the support of divine justice by the suggestion that evils come to be not by his will, but merely by his permission. Of course, so far as they are evils, I admit they are not pleasing to God, but it is quite frivolous refuge to say that God ociously, that is, idly, permits them, when Scripture shows him not only willing, but the author of them. 
Ibidem, page 176. Next heading, recognizes the apparent paradox. For myself, I take another principle. Whatever things are done wrongly and unjustly by man, these very things are the right and just works of God. This may seem paradoxical at first sight to some. Ibidem, page 169. Next heading, establishes secondary causes with man. Further, what I said before is to be remembered, that since God manifests his power through means and inferior causes, it is not to be separated from them. Ibidem, page 170. So, just just to um, clarify, that means uh, it's coming from concerning the eternal predestination of God. Next heading, establishes primary causes with God. But where it is a matter of men's counsels, wills, endeavors, and exertions, there is greater difficulty in seeing how the providence of God rules here too, so that nothing happens but by his assent, and that men can deliberately do nothing unless he inspire it. Ibidem, pages 171 to 172. Indeed, the ungodly pride themselves on being competent to effect their wishes, but the facts show in the end that by them, unconsciously and unwillingly, what was divinely ordained is implemented. Ibidem, 173. For the man who honestly and soberly reflects on these things, there can be no doubt that the will of God is the chief and principal cause of all things. Ibidem, page 177. But of all the things which happen, the first cause is to be understood, to be his will, because he so governs the natures created by him, as to determine all the counsels and the actions of men to the end decreed by him. Ibidem, page 178. Next heading. Concedes that which God permits, he authors. But it is quite frivolous refuge to say that God ociously permits them, when scripture shows him not only willing but the author of them. Ibidem, page 176, faces the dilemma. But the objection is not yet resolved, that if all things are done by the will of God, and men contrive nothing except by his will and ordination, then God is the author of all evils. Ibidem, page 179. They again object. Were not men predestinated by the, ord by the ordination of God to that corruption which is now held forth as the cause of condemnation? If so, when they perish in their corruptions, they do nothing else than suffer punishment for that calamity into which by the predestination of God Adam fell and dragged all his posterity headlong with him. Is not he therefore unjust in this cruelly mocking his creatures? I admit that by the will of God all the sons of Adam fell into that state of wretchedness in which they are now involved, and this is just what I said at the first that we must always return to the mere pleasure of the divine will, the cause of which is hidden in himself. But it does not forthwith follow that God lies open to this charge. The Institutes of Christian Religion, Book 3, Chapter 23, Section 4 Thinking that the difficulty here may be resolved by a single word, some are foolish enough serenely to overlook what occasions the greatest ambiguity, Namely, how God may be free of guilt in doing the very thing that he condemns in Satan, and the reprobate, and which is to be condemned by men. Concerning the eternal predestination of God, page 179. We learn that nothing happens but what seems good to God. How then is God to be exempted from the blame to which Satan with his instruments is liable? 
Ibidem, page 180. Next heading, Calvin's answer to the dilemma. What I have maintained about the diversity of causes must not be forgotten. The proximate cause is one thing, the remote cause another. Ibidem, page 181. Certain shameless and illiberal people charge us with calumny by maintaining that God has made the author of sin, if his will is made first cause of all that happens. For what man wickedly perpetrates, incited by ambition or avarice or lust or some other depraved motive, since God does it by his hand with a righteous, though perhaps hidden purpose, this cannot be equated with the term sin. Ibidem. Must we then impute the guilt of sin to God, or invent a double will for him, so that he falls out with himself? I have shown that he wills the same as the criminal and the wicked, but in a different way. So now it is to be maintained that there is a diversity of kinds while he wills in the same way, so that out of the variety which perplexes us, a harmony may be beautifully contrived. Ibidem, page 184. Last heading, Calvin's Admission. But how it was ordained by the foreknowledge and decree of God what man's future was without God being implicated as associate in the fault, as the author and approver of transgression, is clearly a secret so much excelling the insight of the human mind that I am not ashamed to confess ignorance. Ibidem, page 124. So these readings uh, confirm what I have long suspected about Calvin, despite admittedly never having read him in depth, uh, namely that Calvin was somewhat confused on the question of whether uh, God was the author of evil or in what sense, or if any uh, intelligible sense could be made out of the question, at least to the human mind. Sometimes it seems like he claims to, you know, have an explanation for why he's not the author of evil, and at other times it seems like he doesn't. Now, granted, I imagine there are some people who are going to say, well, it's because you haven't read Calvin in depth that you don't understand like the super secret, sophisticated reasoning that that was actually underlying his thought. You haven't read him in sufficient depth, but I have, and trust me, it's there. I can't explain it to you. You have to read him. Um, it's a little bit like when you point out that, um, uh, Thomistic uh, absolute divine simplicity is not compatible with Trinitarianism because, you know, Trinitarianism is the claim that the Father is not the Son, is not the Holy Spirit, but that the Father is God, the Son is God, the Holy Spirit is God. Um, this has uh, always conventionally been explained by reference to uh, a distinction between hypostasis and usia. And so the idea is something like, um, you know, a quality and three exemplars of that quality. But if simplicity states that in God there is no distinction or division between existence and essence, then, you know, a quality and exemplar relationship is, is the one thing that we can't have in God. It would seem to suggest that, at best, Trinitarianism is an illusion in the human mind, but not something which characterizes God's true condition, which is, as it were, mind-independent. But if you say this, then what Thomas will do is accuse you of not having understood Aquinas, um, because you haven't read him in sufficient depth, and you haven't grasped the super-secret, sophisticated reasoning which, which underlies his thought, and which they can't explain to you, 
um, all they can do is redirect you to a certain um, page or series of pages and you have to read it. And if you read it and still disagree, then you don't understand it. But again, they can never actually break it down for you how, how, how the two are actually compatible. So the problem with this type of defense is that if there was actually a problem in the reasoning of either Calvin or Aquinas, then, then the only approach that a critic can take, you know, after having read the relevant sections or pages of, of the author, is to say that they don't understand it because it, it doesn't seem to make coherent sense to them. So it's at best just begging the question to keep redirecting critics to certain um, you know, pages or passages as if they were invested with some kind of magical significance without ever entertaining the idea that these authors could simply be wrong. The big problem here, by my lights, is the double standard that while your contradictions are problems and are the reasons why I don't accept your worldview, my contradictions are mysteries. And if you reject my worldview on the grounds that my mysteries, which are holy, um, seem to you like irreconcilable contradictions, you're just being presumptuous and demanding to understand all the mysteries of God. You're just being presumptuous by demanding that God not be mysterious. But of course, the central question that we need to keep in mind is, by what magic power or what method or what hermeneutic is one able to discern which contradictions are holy mysteries and which ones are just contradictions? So um, I, I do have to read Calvin uh, in greater depth, and that's something that I intend to do um, going forward um, into the second season of this podcast. However, at least for the time being, you know, those quotations that I read uh, support what I always assumed to be the case uh, about Calvin in regard to the question of evil and, and um, who, who authors it. Namely that Calvin must have been confused on the question uh, and, as, and as a result would have just had to punt to mystery. But, you know, needless to say, even if he does just claim that it's a holy mystery, it does happen to make God look rather evil by our standards, uh, to which the, you know, the expected response is that God's goodness is different from our goodness, and who are we as fallen creatures to uh, criticize with our own paltry notion of goodness God's higher notion of goodness, which from our standpoint just looks like the unconstrained power of an absolute monarch. Might makes right as an ultimate theological principle. Well, at least one reason why, you know, I, I would challenge uh, the idea uh, that, that God has a different conception of goodness than we have is that if you say that he has some radically different conception of goodness from us that by our lights just looks like badness, then um, I don't know how you get people to actually you know, agree with your claim that God has a radically different conception of goodness. Let's call it schmoodness or idiosyncrasy. Because if the basis for your claim that God has goodness is something like that God has every perfection, 
um, then the only reason you have people nodding along with you when you say that is that they have their own very different conception of what goodness is uh, in mind when you say that. You're tricking them, essentially, whether you realize it or not. If you told them that God necessarily possesses, as one of his perfections, some kind of absolute incomprehensible idiosyncrasy, whereby, you know, he uh, unconditionally elects some to glory and others to perdition just to display the full range of his power and glory, perhaps, but even that might be, you know, too presumptuously seeking to understand the mind and nature of God. Well, again, I don't, I don't know how you get people to actually follow you on that if, if that conception of goodness is not the one which they naturally think of when they think of as when they think of God as necessarily possessing maximal goodness or being convertible with goodness per you know some kind of uh, doctrine of divine simplicity. The best reason it seems to me that you can offer is that your exegesis is just so good and so controlling, and it's just better than anyone else's it's so much better than anyone else's exegesis that people have to uh, agree with you that that god's uh goodness looks like the totally unconstrained exercise of of monarchical power but um to me that claims seems rather dubious too as as i've explored in other episodes uh relating to the interpretation of scripture. Anyway, um, if nothing else, the problem with claiming that God's conception of goodness is radically different than ours um, is just another way of claiming that, that, that God is evil, as I believe John Stuart Mill uh, noted. But, um, you know, I've, I've trash-talked Calvinism a, a fair amount so far, it seems, uh, but I wanted to say that in terms of future directions for this podcast, I am uh, seeking to establish relationships with um, uh, Calvinists and um, have conversations. I've got at least one lined up um, in which we can explore Calvinism in a way that is positively um, accented. I want to accentuate the positives of Calvinism because I, I do believe that it has positives. Um, I don't believe that Calvinists are heretics, um, if only because um, I don't think that most of them uh, at least believe that, you know, God is evil. So I want to have some discussions about Calvinism that aren't uh, totally negative. And that's where I'm going uh, in terms of the uh, near future of this podcast. Okay, well, I think that soon it will be time to wrap up this episode, but by way of closing, I want to uh, say again that Calvinism is significant because um, the sovereignty of God is, is inescapable. Since no human being or indeed no moral agent which comes into being, which exists contingently, can be ultimately self-determining, then wherever it ends up is ultimately the responsibility of God. So viewed in that light, you might say that my theology is just a kind of Calvinism in which God predestines everyone to heaven, and in which all their 
in which everyone's choices are just a reflection of God's positive will, and that's it. But that's not quite how I would put it myself. In fact, even the way that I expressed it just a moment ago, that God is ultimately responsible for where you know each moral agent ends up, ends up, that has to be qualified and explained to a certain degree, you know, based on what I was saying earlier about how God can mean different things when we're answering different questions. Where God means ultimate reality, uh, everything that's real, then yes, God is is um, uh, ultimately responsible for where each being uh, ends up. But I think that following Langan, ultimate reality uh, uh as a superconsciousness can be understood in terms of its global and top-down uh, movements and also its local and bottom-up movements. In another sense, God is the former and we are the latter. Ultimate reality as a whole is self-determining because nothing exists outside it to externally determine it, uh, but within its confines, so to speak, it does obey the principle of sufficient reason, which means that it's not indeterministic, or to put it another way, it's not magical or a-causal. Again, I'm following Langan here. So to the extent that we are part of ultimate reality, we, we imagers or creatures of God, we participate in the self-determinism of ultimate reality. We are partly responsible for where we end up, but not absolutely responsible for it. And um, importantly, um, to the extent that we end up in places that God would not have wished for us, it is due to ignorance, and God factors that in which ignorance, you know, is exculpatory. So I would say that we bear partial responsibility for our uh, fates or destinies as moral agents, but not absolute or total responsibility. And again, to the extent that we fall short, it is due to ignorance. Importantly, I don't view God as, as predestinating and directly determining each one of our choices. I believe each of us, uh, uh, local image bearers of God, fractionations of his consciousness, we, we seek the good uh, to the extent that, that we see it. And we are part of the distributed cognitive network uh, that is um, uh, the mind of God. But the highest will or executive intelligence of that mind purposes something uh, in which uh, our interests factor in and have some influence, but with which our interests are not uh, always in complete alignment. So this is what I take to be the interplay between God and creature. Uh, and I think importantly that the reason why agents behave as they do is, is that it's not all just one uh, monochromatic reflection of of. God's will, where God is understood as like an executive purposing intelligence, but rather I think that um, our choices uh, sort of happen organically uh, from the ground up based on the nature of the good, which God is in another sense. God as unbound telesis, the horizon of horizons, the limit of limits, that uh, the superconsciousness in which we live and move and have our being, or the second person of the Trinity, if you like, uh, uh, seeks over the longest of time frames, seeks over eternity, which is not some kind of mind-independent element in which God is suspended, but which rather can be seen as the action of the activity of God's mind. I don't know how clear I'm managing to make all this at this moment, unfortunately.
some interruptions occurred during recording that scattered my thoughts, but for the most part, I think I actually am managing to say what I meant to say. What I'm saying is that as far as um, where we end up as moral agents, um, God understood as the global or top-down or executive intelligence of, of ultimate reality uh, bears an unavoidable uh, level of responsibility. But it's not as if uh, God is to be condemned um, for that responsibility because in some sense, ignorance and limitation is just the price of existence. We can't exist in any other way uh, than as limited and ignorant creatures. Every, every determination is a negation. And to exist in the consciousness of a God is to be limited and defined, at least synchronically or instantaneously, metatemporally or, or over eternity. We are, uh, we we are free and undefined and and infinite in a sense. So it ultimately doesn't make much sense to blame God for where we end up because God sustains us in being. And ignorance is, in some real sense, the condition of our being. I mean, the prerequisite of our being. And so it's expected that we're going to stumble um, as part of our learning, ultimately. So, yeah, on some level, I don't really view the question of who bears the responsibility as having the same awful significance that an Augustinian might, because I, I don't see that that finite sin, um, finite in the sense that the moral agent does not bear absolute or total responsibility for what they did. I don't see that finite sin ever gets punished infinitely. I see that the punishment of sin uh, is, is sin itself in some sense. It's its own punishment. And that's why sin is wrong, because it, it, it makes you unhappy, even though prior to committing it, you think it will. So yeah, in the final analysis, am I claiming that God has some kind of absolute sovereignty? God in the sense of ultimate reality, yes. Uh, God in the sense of the highest uh, sort of executive intelligence of ultimate reality, with uh, which, which interfaces uh, with the rest of ultimate reality as a, as a self does to another. No, that, that is not ultimately, that does not bear absolute, that is not absolutely sovereign. God in that sense is not absolutely sovereign. It's not possible for uh, some executive intelligence within consciousness to um, uh, absolutely determine itself uh, as well as everything else, just based on the, the necessary limits of consciousness. Okay, just to clarify that last point and wrap up, um, an executive consciousness uh, does not and cannot determine everything about itself from that self-same executive level. Rather, it participates in uh, an ebb and flow, a give and take between the global and the local. And um, uh, if it were otherwise, I think that would engender paradoxes of actualized infinity. Um, so hopefully that makes that last point um, uh, slightly more clear. Um, that is all that I have uh, for today's episode, and um, thank you for everyone who's listened to me through this first year. Um, next year, I've just got more of the same planned, more conversations and more audio essays. 
So if you've been listening so far, I hope you will continue to listen. And I just thank you very kindly for your time. And um, I'll see you next time. Thank you.